people deal with this subject with such extremities. And it's like either you're just into fast fashion or you see it as totally wrong and you just become this like anti-clothing, only thrift shopping, never buying anything from any other country, something like that. And that's not how it works and that's not the solution. Hey guys, and welcome to another episode of the Unfazed with Tazzy Faye podcast, where we have casual down-to-earth conversations about all sorts of topics. On today's episode, I will be talking to Mariam Shahata, a fashion industry marketing project manager and graduate of international development studies from UCLA. Through her education, she gained a broader perspective on the realities, roadblocks, and impact of fast fashion, and just how much consumers play a key role in it all. I reached out to her to learn more about the world of fast fashion and asked her opinion on how it all plays into the Muslim modest fashion scene. I learned a lot from our conversation and it helped me realize that it isn't really all that black and white. So here's our conversation discussing the gray and everything in between. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. I really appreciate it. I'm really um, happy to be here. Yeah. So can you tell the audience a little bit about yourself and what you do? Yeah. So... What I do now currently, which was, uh, it took a, a few steps to get to this point to know that I feel like this is, you know, a good starting track to my career. I'm currently a project manager for marketing at Macy's. Before that, my education, I got an associate's of arts degree in fashion design at the Fashion Institute of Design and Merchandising. When I entered design, I went in purely for the creative aspect. And then I had learned a lot about what goes into actual production of design. So I really wanted to get into the business. I was able to pursue their advanced AA in international manufacturing and product development. In that program, I was able to travel the world not only for trend research, but I was able to go to China, Hong Kong, um, mainland China and Hong Kong in order to uh, check out some manufacturing that the company we were producing clothes for, uh, where they produce their clothes. And all of that really opened my eyes to the socioeconomic impact of what production, mass production, not just clothing, but anything we consume, uh, what its socioeconomic impact is on countries around the globe. And so I decided to finish my bachelor's degree in international development studies at UCLA. And yeah, here I am now in product and project management for marketing, uh, because after a, a long journey, I realized consumers really hold a lot of power, especially in their purchasing power. And so marketing is kind of the track I'm in right now to see how much I can influence all of you. So, <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Um, so, you know, based on the research that I did and then also what, what you just mentioned, um, I know you've traveled around the world and gotten a chance to see what production looks like in different countries. So can you talk a little bit about what you saw? I had a great opportunity where uh, the company that we were producing a line for was able to take us to their factories in China. And this factory, of course, was considered uh, one meeting ethical standards. Uh, I just remember going, and I'm not going to mention any names. There's an article with some of the names, but <laughs> I just remember that a lot of uh, environmental, you know, a lot of environmental uh, regulations that were said were made didn't really seem to be such, I mean, if you were around the factory, there was blue dye everywhere. They had, they kind of showed you a pond with fish saying that this is the water that we're outputting. Um, the employees didn't seem to have any kind of relationship with the managers or anyone um, of higher leadership within the factory. And this was the best of the best. I mean, this was something that, you know, these employers were coming to show us, like, look how well we're treating um, our factory workers. And so that really just opened my eyes um, and got me really thinking, if this is the best of the best, what's the worst of the worst? And what's going through and under the radar that no one's even seeing? So, yeah, that's that's a little snippet of that experience. And um, I'm hoping to have more in the future. And I definitely know uh, especially from some of my nonprofit work at the Worldwide Responsible Accredited Production, they're the largest certification org in the um, uh, in the country to certify factories uh, across the globe, and a lot of it is a game of just meeting 
uh, regulations in order to kind of like pass the test. It's not mm-hmm. really necessarily this need to provide better circumstances or environments for their employees. It's kind of like um, corporations won't buy from us unless we meet these standards. Corporations will only meet these standards because consumers won't buy for them if they don't. And so how do we work together to meet that without expending so much of our financial resources and reducing too much of our profit? Yeah, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I mean, they are, you know, corporations are kind of just like machines at the end of the day, but consumers, like you said, have a lot of power. Um, so I, I can believe that they would just be trying to meet the bare minimum, you know, yeah. so that they can sell their stuff mm-hmm. um, and make money. So. I mean, based on, based on that, your answer and and just in general, from what you've seen, do you feel it's possible to cater to a big market and still produce clothes ethically? Yeah. So that poses like a huge question. Um, A lot of people don't know that mass mass production and fast fashion really didn't start until around the eighties. And in retrospect, that's very new. Um, And when you think about the the time of uh, trial and error, there hasn't been much time for the error part yet. We, we've just in the last like 10, 20, 15 years have recognized these minor errors and realized what kind of impact all of this like excess consumerism has caused for other people um, across the globe. And the, this, there are solutions. It's very difficult. It has a lot to do with supply chain, has a lot to do with, um, and unfortunately, it's it's complicated because labor laws are regulated within each country. So although we're buying products from another country and we're upset if they're being mistreated, we technically don't really have a say of why that country is allowing certain uh, laborers to be in certain conditions. But what we can do is take away our money, take away our use our purchasing power for that to be influenced for them to change it. Right. Um, but on a, on a more structured scale with dedicated minds, with this uprising of consumers caring about social and environmental impact, there are people out there, there are institutions and there are, um, companies that are taking steps that they can in order to, um, in order to find these resolutions, in order to be able to um, avoid these things. Now, I don't know if necessarily the intentions are super altruistic. I mean, at the end of the day, these generally these huge shifts generally happen after some kind of fiasco comes to the public eye and people stop shopping there. When you know Zara had their like Syrian children uh, uh, producing jeans in Turkey, or when uh, currently Nike right now has. Um, it's been stated that Uyghur Muslims are in some of the factories that Nike's producing. I mean, that's wrong. And I know like I've, I was able to visit the headquarters of Nike in, in Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. And I know that Nike is a company that works very, very hard in order to reduce the impact that they're doing, but also catering to the popularity that they have generated in this consumer world. So mm-hmm. it's a very difficult task they employ over a million people worldwide. Like that's crazy. What company do you know has a million employees? This is including their factory workers. So mm-hmm. they are a corporation and we like to separate corporations from international policy, from politics, but that's what consumers need to push corporations to understand now. And that's what the world needs corporations to understand now. You're no longer just a United States company who's just trying to cater to your consumer. You have global impact. You have to take on responsibilities. Being transparent isn't even enough. That's kind of the stage we're in that I find really frustrating Mm -hmm. is we're just kind of in a very like, just tell us, just tell us where you're producing. Just let us know like where Mm -hmm. the the, the supply chain is. And I feel like maybe just from spending a lot of my time studying this, I'm like, that we're way behind. Like we should have known supply chain like 15 years ago. Right mm-hmm. now we should know supply chain and we should be able to, you know, cut down on anything that seems suspicious or unruly. So yeah, there, if to answer your question, there are ways. Mm-hmm. I think we're very much in trial error right now and we're very much in transparency. 
Um, and the next step forwards is finding better solutions. And I, I do think there is a possibility, but um, it starts and ends with the consumer and their choices. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that makes that makes sense. Um, does it? I feel like it was. No, it does. It's just like I I'm I start listening to what you're saying, and I have a question, and I'm like, oh, that's a good point. Like, let me go off that question. But then I actually start really listening without thinking about what questions I want to ask. So then you finish, and I'm like. Okay, let me just look at my next question. <laughs> um, no, it make, it does make a lot of sense. And I think with corporations, um, back to what you were saying, like they're not, they're almost like, if, if you have a million workers, you're almost like a country yourself, you know? Exactly, it, it, yeah. exactly. So, um, and that's why I find it so interesting that labor laws are still, that they're still by each country mm-hmm. and it's not, as, as a, as a globe, that's one whole pie. I mean, people don't realize we're one whole pie and we benefit from one another and we, we can't really survive without, let's be real. Like we cannot survive without China. I mean, majority of what we consume is from China and we still feel so separate to what's happening in those countries, what's happening to Uyghur Muslims, what's happening to the general population of China suffering from our consumption. So Okay, so what I want to kind of pivot to is I want to talk about where we fit in as Muslims. Um, You know, this video that I'm making is about modest fashion, and I kind of want to explore all the facet, the different facets of it. Um, And one of those is, you know, as Muslim brands arrive, or you know, you have people selling hijabs, and you know, they have their own lines. um, You know, should we be thinking about whether we should be held to a higher standard. How do we fit in this? So, um, you know, especially when going back to what you were saying, like when you have something like what happened in Bangladesh where, you know, there's a fire and, you know, these companies are not paying their workers anything. It's really bad working conditions. Um, But then you're in America and you're purchasing things from, you know, that says made in Bangladesh. So, or you're selling things. So. do you feel that as Muslims, we have a responsibility to rise above the current hyper-consumist fashion culture? Where do we kind of fit in to this? That's a really long-winded, but just go wherever you want. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's so interesting because um, I do think my Islam is like a huge, uh, what's the word, a huge fuel to my passion um, mm-hmm. because really like as scary as it sounds sometimes when I'm in this, I try to put myself in a corporation perspective, a corporation that has like no religious, you know, you know, God telling them what's morally wrong, no ethical people. It's like, if your, if your religion is money and profit, how do you get people to change that? So I do think being Muslim really does fuel an an extra responsibility um, that others might not feel. And I do think as Muslim consumers, it's weird saying Muslim consumers, because I would like to tell everyone whether they believe it or not, whether they understand it or not, mm-hmm. you do have a responsibility to consume less, recognize just human morale in the fact that a lot of your pleasure is a result of someone's pain. Um, and I tell this to myself first and foremost, I mean, ask my friends, like I, I studied fashion. I love fashion. Um, mm-hmm. I love how clothes can express who you are. Hijab is such a huge part of my life. And embracing my hijab with fashion was a huge turning point for me in high school. I remember I uh, was really nervous about wearing hijab. And then when I took it from a fashion perspective, so buying new clothes, getting really stylish with it, before I knew about this whole world of global impact and what fashion does, um, that was a huge confidence boost and a huge shift in like even just my classmates who weren't Muslim and how they perceived me in hijab. So it's such a fine line because, you know, embracing fashion is so great, but it has these consequences that people don't know. So I think it's important for Muslims to educate themselves and to make conscious decisions um, towards that. And if I can give like one simple piece of advice, which I remind myself every day is consume less and not necessarily and consume with quality and longevity in mind. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can buy, you can 
you know, really cave in and see something beautiful and you, and you want to purchase it, but purchase it with this mindset that you're not purchasing it because it's some trend that you're going to not want to wear next summer. Mm-hmm. Purchase it knowing that like five years down the line, you're still going to be wearing it. I mean, I have clothes that people are like, Oh, where'd you get that? And I'm like, maybe it's H and M, but it's H and M from like four years ago because right. I purchased it with this concept. It's a very quality. It's, I wouldn't, I don't know about quality, but it's, you take care of your clothing. It's a very basic purchase. It's something that can take you through the years and trying to close the loop when you decide you are not interested in those pieces of clothing anymore. So I'm not saying throw it to Goodwill. No, mm-hmm. I'm saying do cool, like, um, clothing swaps with your friends. A lot of some of the clothes I have is like, I didn't want this shirt anymore. So I went to my friend, we looked at each other's closet and we switched some pieces we weren't interested in. That gives it, that gives it a, a garment, another three or two years of life right. that you wouldn't even know. And then from there, giving it to someone who, uh, keeping it in good quality and then donating it. Um, but yeah, if your question is about, do Muslims have responsibility? I would say yes. Um, there is a huge responsibility and, um, yeah, it's as simple as yes, we do. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And, um, I know I had one last question that I, I wrote down, but I'm actually going to take this in a direction if that's okay. Um, so, you know, going off of what you had just answered, um, I was thinking about a lot of the culture that's come up with hijabi or let's just say modest fashion bloggers Mm -hmm. in general. Um, I remember when I was younger, I didn't have anybody to look up to. Like I always felt like a freak. I tried to like get into fashion, but I don't think I succeeded. And like, I never felt like I looked nice. Um, and then it was probably, (laughs) I'm sure you did. No, no, I didn't girl. I really did not This is like way back in the day, but now, you know, and then, um, I think around the time of college, like when I was ending college is when I started to like see, I think it was like when Dina and Asia and everybody like first started. Mm, um, I remember that. Then I started like, I was like, oh, I can do this and I can do that. And it really like, you know, helped evolve my fashion sense. Thank God. Mm. I mean, who cares if I did it? But um, so what I'm trying to get at is I feel like now and even maybe then, um, I feel like there's a trade-off to it. Like, I feel like in some ways, okay, we've provided this thing where now girls and, and, and women who didn't have a market cater to them, now we finally have that. And that's really nice to have a website where we can go and have selection of what we want to get. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it also motivates us to practice our religion because you don't feel like, like you feel good about yourself because you have something that you like yeah. and whatever, but something made for you. You're not trying to conform to like something else. Yes. Or, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, but on the other hand, I always, I feel like from a cynical, I have the cynical view of it because I also kind of feel like we're at a place where, I mean, we do promote fast fashion. We promote having new clothes all the time. When you see bloggers wearing new stuff all the time, every season. Um, and in some ways I feel like we kind of reinvented the machine of, making girls feel bad about themselves by trying to empower them. Like all we did was set a new beauty standard. So I want, I kind of want to hear your thoughts on, on that. Um, yeah. That's like, Oh my God. Just make sure I don't go into like 50 different tangents. I already did that with us. <laughs> yes. So similar, similar, um, start to hijab felt like a freak. Uh, had a lot of people at school think like I did it for attention, had friends question whether they wanted to hang out with me or I'm even embarrassed. I grew up in a very like conservative town. Okay. So, um, so yeah, I did embrace the fashion, but it was more kind of like in an innocent, like genuine sense. Like I matched my hijab with my pants. Like it wasn't necessarily like I was still shopping at Ross and Sears and got right. chocks, you know what I mean? Getting my mom, grabbing my mom's hijabs and like matching it with like some of her clothing. So Um, so yeah, so that was kind of like a mental, like approach to fashion, but it was nothing compared to like what fashion is for hijabis now and what high school hijabis look right now. I'm like, oh, wow. You guys could be like running the show. Yeah. Yeah, Our, our dress, which is like, like what you said. I mean, we've now with me, even just saying that that's like perpetuating now the same, we've now entered what people had as pressures before. So I remember, um, just thinking, how when you were younger and you were wearing hijab, and even if you were embracing it, when you would see magazines or fashion bloggers or um, 
things in, in media that like represented beauty and things like that. It was kind of, at least for me, it was easy to separate myself from that pressure because I'm like, they're different than me. They don't dress like me. They don't look like me. This is not the same standards I uphold. Like it's very different. And I was able to like kind of relinquish myself from that pressure. But in the last few years with now so many like hijab bloggers and fashionistas and um, it's kind of like, like you said, two different avenues. We've now gotten this confidence that we've been looking for in the industry and in the world and in fashion. But now this standard that I didn't have growing up with girls who are putting on their hijab now at like ages 13, 12, and very, very vulnerable times, not only like having to still deal with like Islamophobia and racism in their high school, it's not like fashion's going to solve it all, mm-hmm. um, are now dealing with like beauty pressures that is not supposed to come with hijab. Like as much as like, I'm all for um, embracing your hijab, beautifying and everything, like the act of putting on hijab should be kind of like separate from this need I want to word this really carefully. It's hard. Yeah. Hijab the way you want. You mm-hmm. can beautify yourself in the way that you want. Everything is between you and Allah. Like at the end of the day, it's between you and Allah and, and that's it. But the idea that now hijab is coming now and it's now being very associated with how well you can wear hijab and how beautiful you can wear it. Um, separate from if that's your own interest and you're excited to do that versus the pressures that younger girls who don't really care about that Mm-hmm. are now being put in. Um, so you're right. I agree with you. I think we have re, um, perpetuated a new cycle of beauty standards that we didn't have to deal with before uh, that now girls have to deal with. Um, there's like a, there is like a, a specific version of what a hijabi kind of should look like now these days. Um, and it's, I don't even know where to start in terms of how to solve that. If there is a solution, if you just let things like this take its course. Um, but yeah, there's a huge difference now. And I think one thing that would be really important from all these, um, from these people who, cause I know it's, it's a, it's really tough putting yourself in the public eye, but it's just reminding your, um, reminding your followers that you don't look like that 24 seven. Like you totally, like even myself, like I was just telling you, like I literally <laughs> put on makeup for the first time in like months just for <laughs> this, like this is, you know, like, yeah putting on cute clothes and makeup, like for a picture on Instagram is like, so beyond like what real life usually looks like. And it's just reminding consumers about that. Um, and then, yeah, it's very hard to get the message out to a lot of these fashion bloggers that are making money and following their passions with fashion, but they are, they are contributing to fast fashion. I mean, how many times have they posted? Oh, I got this from Zara and this from nasty gal and this from whatever. And then people just click, 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 and they buy Mm -hmm. it and they bought it and they didn't even need it. They didn't even know they needed it, but they saw it. They loved it. They're like, I need to look like that. They think it's kind of, I've even almost fallen into this. You think like, oh, this is such a quality purchase, but it's like, this is so trend. This is so trend. Like, is this really something you're going to wear in like four years? Is this something really you're going to wear in three years? You're going to wear next winter, next summer. So right. yeah, that's my thoughts. That's my spiel. Yeah. It's a hard one. I mean, It's, it's really difficult because I, I don't know the answer. I think it's hard to, to weigh the pros and cons of it because honestly, who, who knows? I mean, I don't think it's good. I do think that as influencers and whatever it may be, I do think that when you're Muslim, I think you kind of, you know, have to like be mindful of these things, you know, um, I mean, I think anybody should be mindful of it. I but think it's anybody, like, yeah, I always think that. I'm like, because you always start with like, yeah, Muslims should be. And it's like, wait, we're in a world now where you you definitely need to be mindful. Like, I don't know why this connects to it. But for example, a lot of people usually ask me like, oh, where's like an ethical place to shop? Or like, mm-hmm. I don't even give suggestions anymore because two of my favorite um, ethical companies had like a huge fallout during the Black Lives Matter movement. And just okay. a lot of things came out about them, about how they treat their workers and their um, diversity inclusion and mm-hmm. things they've said that are so problematic. So they're not Muslim, but yeah. they definitely should uphold a lot of standards and like what they push out in the world. Um, I, I think I think what's also complicated is there's so much money to be made in social media. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not saying every blogger is like, you know, doing like extremely well, but there is so much like you can get free things. You Mm -hmm. can, um, quit your day job if you really work hard and go at it. Um, there's so much money to be made and 
it's easy to use that as an excuse to justify, you know, why you're doing this or mm-hmm. whatnot. I've even gone through this sometimes, like, you know, as like, sometimes I'm like, oh, I would really love if I could like express like my love of fashion and then like maybe show people like how I've kept the same shirt over these few years or how I style one shirt with like 50 different looks or not being afraid to wear the same thing, like two days in a row, things yeah. like that. But I'm like, at the end of the day, I'm still going to perpetuate shopping. I'm still going to be tagging things and things that people didn't have before, didn't know they needed. They're going to click it and they're going to want to purchase it. And it's just something, at least for myself, that would be difficult to swallow. Yeah. And yeah. And that's why Muslims are responsible to learn about these things. I don't, I I genuinely don't think a lot of these girls who, um, or guys who are Muslim and fashion bloggers, I don't, um, I genuinely don't think that they, the, the, the depths of, um, all of this, I've Mm -hmm. studied most of my education in this and it took me a while, like to grasp it and to make solid decisions. Like I boycotted Zara for two years. And if you know me, that's very, that was very difficult decision. Like, and that was just me starting to learn. Like it was, my friends had to hold me back. Like it was very hard to like not shop there because Mm. it's like you, nobody's telling you that this is wrong. Like it's something you have to choose to learn yourself and realize yourself and like remind yourself especially in COVID, no one's seeing you shopping anymore. Right. Just be clicking and just buying a bunch of things that you don't need. So I totally went to like four tangents. (laughs) No, no, it's perfect. It's great. So what, what interested you? Like, why did you even go to school for this or what, what, what took you there? (laughs) That's a good, that's a good question. So I went to school for this because, um, long story short, I've always been an artist my whole life, creative mind. I gave a lot of workshops actually at UCLA for college students about how, um, like connecting the three dots, like your talent, um, your dean and your career and how they can be three things together. It's not separate. Like a lot of people think like, Oh, let me do my job. And then I'm going to go to the masjid or like my local community. And then I'm going to like pursue my passionate. Hello. How beautiful. Is that a, is that a bangle? No, no. I, they were foster cats. I I mean, I thought maybe she was a Maine Coon or something, but I don't know. (laughs) But she loves to just walk around. No. Yeah. So, um, so I try to tell people how like you can combine these three things. So for me, um, I've always been someone who I can't really move forward without loving what I'm doing. Like I'm just a passionate person. You know, I excelled in certain things in school, but nothing really sparked my interest. And then all of a sudden, like I went to this workshop about fit and design. I just put on hijab. I had just seen what like embracing my hijab and design did for me that I didn't have those influences just like you growing Mm -hmm. up. And I, I just envisioned a world where hijab, um, was in high fashion, was in couture, was in, um, I mean, couture and high fashion is meant to be a trickle down system, like a pyramid system. Like it could be like crazy avant-garde looks, but those avant-garde looks translate into like your normal consumer. So I went to design school with that passion that I wanted to bring modest fashion to the masses to put it simply. Um, and then, and so it started off with that kind of, of an Islamic scoped, uh, intention. And then that, I think I truly like, I really believe that Allah will guide you where you need to go. If you always remind yourselves of your intention. And I had gone into design school. I had kind of like recognized that like a lot of design is it's kind of like ego, like my designs are better. And, you know, like it's always just pushing to the world that you have something to show. And I remember throughout my college years, I noticed a lot of hijab brands were coming out. A lot of like Muslim women were starting to get into like ads of companies that we know. Um, Macy's like acquired a hijab company, like not acquired. They started selling their garments in their stores. So Mm -hmm. I kind of realized like this thing that I wanted to do was already happening and me being a part of it wasn't like a crucial turning point. And in the midst of that realization, I started learning about ethical manufacturing. And I just remember in one of my business classes, you know, the teacher was like, okay, so the teacher, the professor was like, all right, so we're going to base it off of um, American like minimum wage, but we all know that that's definitely not the cost of production. And like, that's, I will never forget that day. That was when the light bulb just like flickered. I'm like, well, so what is it? Like, what is the cost of production? And then going deeper and deeper into that, um, I was just obsessed with learning about, you know, how much this goes beyond fashion. This goes beyond, like people think like, oh, so like fashion ethics. I'm like, no, this is like cup ethics. This is like ring ethics. This is 
you know, scarf, pencil, um, that random, like face massager that you get, like these things like are just being pumped out and nobody knows where they're being made or, or what impacts that they're having on the environment when they not only get thrown away, but when they're produced, the people that are making it, the people that end up with it. So a lot of people think it's really great to uh, just donate your clothes after you're done with it. Like you, you think that's a noble thing. You think you're closing the loop, but you're not. I mean, there's a whole new study of uh, not study. There's just a whole new realization of what all of these like throwaway clothing are doing to other markets in other countries, other um, designers and different countries are not capable of selling their own items because so much of our clothing and like secondhand clothing is going there and being sold there. So, Mm -hmm. and people are preferring it to get brands like, you know, cool brands like Nike and Adidas and and whatnot. So, so I, one thing that we had on our phone call before we did this, I actually Mm -hmm. wanted to touch on that as well. Um, you know, when we talked about the, so we're talking about impact to other countries. Um, I had a conversation one time with my parents where I was kind of going on a rant. This is probably like five, six years ago. And I was like, yeah, it's so unethical to buy these things. And like, you know, they're made by people in Pakistan who get like nothing and this and this and that. And I was asking my parents, I was like, well, as people from Pakistan, like, how do you, how do you feel about that? Like when you see stuff like that, you know, or Mm -hmm. you open a t-shirt and you see made in Pakistan, like, does that impact you at all? And and my parents were kind of, I don't want to say playing devil's advocate, but I, I understand my parents because my my parents grew up there. So like there are things that I will just never know and understand about society or culture. There. Mm-hmm. And one of the things was, you know, my parents were like, well, you're, you're giving income to people who would not have income. That's and I was point. like, okay, you know, so I, I, I want to, I know we briefly talked about that on our last yeah. call too. So I'm um, so glad you brought yeah. this up. Um, and I hope this gets like a little snippet in your video because people deal with this subject with such extremities and it's like either you're just into fast fashion or you see it as totally wrong and you just become this like anti-clothing only thrift shopping never buying anything from any other country something like that and that's not how it works and that's not the solution the world is already set in a lot of ways and how we produce things and if anything's going to change it's going to take maybe 50 years minimum for a significant change to happen. It's not wrong that these items are being produced in other countries. Mm-hmm. They're with the way the world currently works right now, um, there's something called product pools. And certain countries have certain skill sets, have invested the time and education in order to build those skill sets to produce those to produce within those certain product pools. So some countries are their product pool is with um, automobiles. Um, our country, the United States, and a lot of other um, uh, European Western companies, companies, countries, um, are technology-focused. Um, countries like Pakistan, Bangladesh, um, Malaysia are very uh, garment clothing-focused. There's agricultural focus. These things um, take a lot of time for countries to shift out of them. China, you can notice from their last like 30 years of history and uprising of labor protests, how you can, you can visually see these shifts happening um, within this new age of mass production. And that's what's going to happen for a lot of countries. But the reality is these countries are purposely choosing these, these avenues, um, these product pools in order to give income. And it's not like it, it, it's a very lazy approach to think, well, why don't we just not do that? Why don't we just not give them production and, you know, we'll all be fine. It's, it's recognizing that there are better ways to do what we're doing right now Mm -hmm. um, in order for people to not suffer and for people to be able to uh, receive the rights that all humans should. Right. A country like Pakistan should be able to approach the industry of garment manufacturing if they'd like to. Um, It's not really as much as like to, sometimes these things are forced, but they should be able to do that with standards being upheld globally on on that. But what they're dealing with is competition. So um, when China had their protests a few years ago and a lot of um, wages were raised due to these uprisings, 
a lot of um, production like leather and shoes um, that were on the lower end or more risky end of production were dropped. And that's why countries like Pakistan and India picked up on these um, industries that China decided to like remove from their system. Mm-hmm. And because of that, they're now going through the same thing that China went through because there are no regulations for it. So they're dealing with a lot of their employees receiving cancer from like leather dyeing manufacturing. They're, um, um, in Bangladesh, you have factories that have, have no safety regulations in terms of fires. Um, all of these things happened in China. All of these things are now happening in these countries. And once these countries finally like take the steps necessary to fix them, that ultimately leads to increase in wages, increase in regulation. So lack of competition. So that competition then will be taken by the next country that is looking for some kind of um, economic increase or economic uh, sustenance because the way the world works has pushed them to the ground. Mm-hmm. And then they're going to go through all of that. So why can't there be some kind of, uh, why can't there be some kind of global regulation? And that's why it all, it all comes back to consumers. Like, it's not about, oh, I see that it's produced in Bangladesh, so I'm not going to shop there. Mm-hmm. It's, I'm shopping here. Does this company show me where their things are made? Does this company show me where their things are made are certified ethical? Um, and at the end of the day, like going, working at RAP, I've realized like a lot of, they work very hard. A lot of these factories, these people, like your parents said, like you're giving them an income, they want to uphold these standards so that they have business. They don't intentionally, uh, I don't want to presume, I don't want to assume their intentions, but there are a lot of people out there in these countries that are working very hard and are very proud to hold certifications of ethics so that they can get business and they should get business. Mm -hmm. But it's companies that are not held to these standards. Companies like um, fast fashion ones that none of their consumers care whether it's ethical or not, who are able to source from other factories Mm -hmm. that don't have these regulations because they don't need to because they still have that business and they're able to do what they need to do in order to achieve that, whether it's not paying their employees or overworking them or terrible working conditions because they don't have the money or finance or choose not to use that money and finance in, into that. Mm-hmm. So do you get what I'm trying to say? Like it comes down to the consumer, which ultimately leads to the corporation. Like when Nike had like a huge fiasco of um, exposure to their ethical issues in the nineties, there was mass protests and boycotts of shopping at Nike. And if you look at their fiscal calendar, they had a significant drop in revenue because of that. And that was like a huge paradigm shift for them. Um, And what leads them to today being very, as much as they have still so many issues because they're so massive, um, why they put so much effort in finding new ways to like close the loop in their their impact or in their factories or whatnot. Even H&M, has, is working really hard. Um, but the problem is their whole company is based on the concept of fast fashion. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a whole conversation in itself. Like how, how does a fast fashion company become ethical or responsible while still producing like the issue at hand? So it's not as simple as, oh, I see Bangladesh or I see Pakistan and it doesn't. I remember even working in my, um, in my internship and seeing Uh, That was a huge shift for me, at least for H&M. Like I said, it's not like go and shop H&M every day or every week or buy things. It's like if there's a a blazer in H&M's conscious collection that you really do like and you know you're going to use for work for the next three years, like you can buy that because you're making a conscious decision. Like I'm buying this one thing for a purpose and that's what the purpose is for. Um, I had seen H&M on a lot of the factory lists that I was like approving and sending certifications for. So Um, there are companies out there that are trying really hard. Um, I don't know how long they're going to last. I do think, um, companies like forever 21 are failing because of, you know, things like that. Um, so it's not as simple as just peace out of the whole situation. It's take your, take you like this one industry is the one thing where you can be a nobody. And what you're doing, what you're purchasing actually makes a difference. And Mm -hmm. I wish the globe at large knew that. Um, and it does do that. Zara didn't, I mean, Zara is still pretty, not that great, but 
they only shifted a lot of the things that they're doing the last few years because of the, like, because of the horrors that like spread through media, mm-hmm. use your social media to expose these things and things might change. Um, but I'm hoping, I mean, at this point, I don't know how much of this is gonna. Well, it will turn into a pod, like whatever we don't use in the video, it's going to be a podcast. So, oh, okay. Yeah, okay, yeah. Cool. So that's, that's kind of uh, my hope and like current journey of trying to figure out uh, what it is to, to make these shifts because you can start an ethical business. Cool. You're really just, you're really just patting yourself on the back for ensuring that your clothing is ethical, but that doesn't really solve the problem because you still have a large population of people that won't purchase it because the, the cost of it is so much higher than others. Um, a lot of people don't know that literally just to increase the wages of all levels, um, to increase the wages of employees in these factories, times like about two or three would only be about a 30 cent increase per garment. Like people think by making it ethical, it's going to be like $20 more or whatnot. Yeah, you're that's no, what you're, I was thought. Yeah. yeah, no, you're not dealing... That's that's the kind of that's the extremities that I'm talking about. People will be like, "All right, I'm not going to shop here because it's super bad and it's made in Bangladesh and it's really terrible." So I'm going to shop at this like U.S. produced garment that like you know is like a hundred and something dollars versus trying to conquer this issue, increasing the wages and ethics of these people in other countries and having a more fairer system. Right. Um. But the problem is, is if you think of like corporations, 30 cents to us is nothing for a garment, but 30 cents per unit mm-hmm. of over maybe 10,000 garments, is a a, it's a huge shift for them um, as a company. So um, yeah, it's really complicated. I see why you had that conversation with your parents, um, but this also leads to this concept of like child labor. I remember I'm going to try to avoid mentioning like companies just in case I'm not quite sure if Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. If I should mention them, but when I was in Hong Kong, I visited um a company that that uh, it's it's work is in order to help corporations be as, as ethical and clean as possible. And they had uh, mentioned a story an example of one factory that they had to grade down, like they they base their factories by a certain grade A, B, C. Mhm. And they had to not only grade it down, but shut it down because they found that there were, um, there were 14, like around 14, 15 year olds working in this factory. And this is in China. Oh, wow. And that is considered child labor. And a lot of big name companies were associated with this factory. And um, so the solution was, the solution wasn't simple because here you have these kids who are not in school. Mm-hmm. And according to our you know, Western standards, them being 14 and having a job is very wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for anyone to find out that there are technically kids working in a factory, this is super bad. So the factory could not continue. But now you have children who are not in school, don't have a job, mm-hmm. um, who now have to find other means. That you don't know what that could be on the streets to figure out how they're going to have an income or support their family or whichever situation that they might be in. So a lot of these companies got together and decided to open up a school for these uh, children that were, uh, I mean, children is such a small, let's say um, young, uh, underaged uh, kids. And so one year goes by, it's really great. And then now they're asking the companies, all right, well, we need funding for the next year and the next year and the next year. And eventually the school shut down because Companies weren't really down, for lack of better terms, weren't down to just continuously like support this school in another country. They probably did it just to kind of pat themselves on the back, be able Mm -hmm. to find some kind of like common solution. But this situation alone just shows how complicated it is. Um, It shows how complicated it is for these regulations uh, to be met without understanding each country in its own form. And so um, I'm just going to keep giving examples. Another example that I also um, have witnessed when certifying, certifying a part, being a part of certifying factories is we look at 
how many hours we work in a week as a huge indicator of unethical practices, right? Mm -hmm. So we hear of certain people working 80 hours a week and in another country, and that's, that's crazy to us. That's terrible for us. But some individuals um, have found that certified companies that restrict the amount of hours you work in order to meet these ethical certifications as a hindrance because 40 hours for them or 50 hours for them, or maybe even maximum 60 does not meet ends meet for them and their family. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, yeah, I'm giving these examples, not saying that like pushing for these things are wrong. I'm giving these examples just to show people, whoever's listening, that this is so much more complicated than it is being like, I just don't want to shop there because it's from Bangladesh. No, there are people there. There are people in Pakistan, there are people in Malaysia, there are people um, in India that need these jobs. Mm-hmm. And it can't just be like, well, let's just forget about them because, you know, it's terrible. It's like, why, why aren't we standing up for them? They're literally making the clothing that we're wearing on our back, that we're considering luxury, that we're using to um, enjoy our lives. And we just get, we get lazy when it comes to, um, standing up for them in whatever way we need to. Yeah. So yeah, it's really complicated. Just hours, uh, the wages, um, age of being able to work. I mean, yeah, like here we're so immature, like I'm 25 and I feel like a child, but like a 14 year old (laughs) in another country already has a family, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's, yeah, it's just different. I think, I think this is part of the, this is like, this goes beyond just, um, fashion, you know, when it comes to like looking at something through the lens that you're limited to, um, it can be very difficult because we look at everything from a very ethnocentric point of view. Um, even being from Pakistan originally, it doesn't matter. I go there and I'm like, man, this is messed up. That's messed up. This is, but it's like, yeah, I'm understanding that, but I grew up in Colorado. So what am I like, what is my frame of reference? And I mean, going back, you know, to that, I mean, you could say like, I see stuff even now, you know, people working in retail and, you know, by, by those standards, maybe they have really great lives. But like, to me, even when I see people, I'm like, how is this okay? Like, how is some of the, you know, how is it okay to like have people working like that for that many hours? And, you know, but so it's, um, it's very complicated, as you said, but I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me because, um, I think it's really important that people know that this is very nuanced and it's kind of, it's, it's not as simple as like you said, just picking up a shirt and saying, Oh, this was made there. So let me just put that And I hope, I hope, I guess my biggest intention of doing this because I by no means am an expert. I just, this is something I'm passionate about. It's what I studied. I've noticed in my years, not many people know about this. Not many people care, not many people dedicate their lives to it. If that makes sense. I don't even know. If, um, and I'm hoping that this from maybe your listeners or your readers or people who maybe are starting out or, or are in the middle of it to take this as a chance to bring knowledge to, to study this as well and help find solutions. I started at UCLA, I started a, a club called apparel industry careers. And my intention of that was just getting a lot of intelligent minds, whether you're in um, whether you're in material science or you're in sociology or psychology or you're a history major, getting these people who have a lot of altruistic points of views, who have social impact on their mind mm-hmm. to come and look at this clothing industry for a start, which leads into product at large, and getting passionate about just how much influence this industry does like we are like the fashion industry is the second most polluting industry after oil. And I was going to ask you what's the first. Yeah. Yeah. After oil. And like people just think fashion, like I just wish people could just separate like media fashion from like production fashion. Mm -hmm. And if they were able to do that, I feel like it would become a passion project for so many people, not even just a passion project, a career. So I really just hopped on here to talk to you to, shed maybe just the light of what I've learned. Again, not an expert, but just what I've learned in hopes that other people want to learn as well in hopes to encourage more people to enter into this and to make change because it's not going to be one person. We could boycott all we want, but we need, I'm in project management, I'm in business, but we need lawyers. Mm -hmm. There needs to be um, 
academics. There needs to be um, material science uh, or or chemistry uh, majors that look at different ways. Um, there's a lot of like leather produced with mushrooms now. There's mm-hmm. uh, people trying to make um, uh, fabrics biodegradable. One of my favorite companies is EcoAlf. They're based in Spain. They literally pull out plastic from their ocean oh. and change that plastic into f- different uh, like into materials, fabrics that they make for their clothing clothing and now sell, or I think they're about to try to sell to other companies. So it's like, it's going to take a global movement. Mm -hmm. And I really hope that if maybe at least like five people from this podcast or video hear this and decide to shift their mindset on how they're approaching their product management position or whatever, whether they work at Apple, Mm -hmm. whether they work at Burberry, or if they work at even Google, um, that they can shift their mindset and see how the skills they've already bought or the minds that they have can impact this. And then hopefully sooner rather than later, things can happen and things can change. So yeah. thank you for having me. <laughs> it's oh. really, like, awesome to be able to come on here and talk to you. And thanks for these questions and posing them and <laughs> bringing this to the masses. So yeah. no, thank you. I really appreciate it. And I know you said, you, you know, you said like, Oh, I'm not an expert girl, you know, way more than most people about this stuff. So, you know, don't, don't, um, sell yourself short on that I hope in 15 years maybe at least I can I could confidently say that and hopefully I've made some kind of impact but who knows where we'll be and if anything COVID is such a crucial time uh for a lot of people to know like this stuff matters I mean yeah yeah. because you're not going anywhere with the clothes you buy I'm going anywhere with the clothes it became so secondary it became so unnecessary what is the point that's so true And that concludes today's episode. Thank you guys so much for listening. I appreciate the support so much, as always. And I want to give a special thank you to the editor of the podcast, Faison. You can find him on SoundCloud and Instagram at Faison Beats. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give me a rating and a review. It will help a ton. And if you want to help keep this podcast going, you can support by giving a small monthly donation to help us sustain future episodes on the Anchor FM podcast page. And that's all I have for you guys. So this is Tezzy Faye signing out. Bye. Bye.